Welcome back to The Good, The Bad and The Bogus. This is David Free, and today I'm going to be talking about the much-ballyhooed book White Fragility by the American sociologist and anti-racism trainer Robin D'Angelo. The book's subtitle is Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Incidentally, or perhaps not incidentally, Robin D'Angelo happens to be a white person herself. Normally when I'm reviewing a book, I don't feel the need to kick off by specifying the author's skin colour. In fact, it's quite a creepy thing to do. But after reading D'Angelo's book, it feels like a natural move. Because D'Angelo is morbidly obsessed with the topic of race, and thinks about it all the time, and wants everybody else to think about it all the time too. So it seems only fair and necessary to say right off the bat that Robin D'Angelo is a white person, even by her own admission. Another thing I want to make clear straight away is that if I say that D'Angelo's book is preposterous, and I'm afraid I am going to have to say that, that doesn't mean I think racism isn't a real problem, which can and must be talked about seriously. What I'm saying is that D'Angelo's way of talking about it isn't serious. People like her trivialize the important questions they talk about by talking about them in a hectoring and uncivilized way. Instead of making good-faith rational arguments, they fill the air with fear and loathing, and they surround their dubious claims with a defense system of hidden tripwires and booby traps. One of their favorite tricks is to suggest that if you disagree with their very narrow and outlandish theories about racism, that means you're in favor of racism. And that, of course, is a deeply nonsensical argument. It's like saying that if you don't think it's a good idea to put out a fire by pouring kerosene on it, that means you're opposed to the idea of putting out the fire. The theories D'Angelo puts forward in her book are intolerant, immoderate, and above all, made up. They're unproved. Indeed, they're unprovable. Her book is a blueprint for division and resentment. The remedies it proposes seem to have been deliberately designed so that they can't possibly work. Also, D'Angelo seems to imagine that once you've loudly asserted that you're against racism, that gives you a free pass to do and say anything you like. As long as you're a self-declared anti-racist, you can't be factually or morally wrong, you can't be cruel or backward, you can't be a bully or a bigot, and you certainly can't be a racist. I'd say that by the end of D'Angelo's nasty little book, all of those delusions have been spectacularly blown out of the water. In America, the reception for D'Angelo's book hasn't been universally positive. Some of America's more discerning critics have tried hard to blow the whistle on it, but in more gullible quarters, the book has been received with an alarming amount of reverence. When people on TV want to demonstrate how serious they are about not being racist, they bring on the patently mediocre D'Angelo as if she's some kind of all-knowing oracle or sage. Her book was a bestseller when it was first published in 2018, and this year it's become a bestseller all over again. I'll tell you how popular it is. When you start to type in the title on Amazon, the predictive text kicks in, and you get to see a list of all the other popular search terms beginning with the word white. The good news for D'Angelo is that white fragility is currently ranked above white shirt and well ahead of white vinegar. The bad news is that white fragility is still for the moment a less popular search term than white noise machine. 
So as eager as Americans are to hear D'Angelo's thoughts about white fragility, they would still on the whole prefer to buy a machine that generates meaningless noise. So perhaps American consumers haven't totally lost their minds after all. At least a white noise machine doesn't think it's making sense. Robin D'Angelo coined the term white fragility in 2011, and that seems to have been her central claim to fame until she wrote this book. To understand what her concept means, we need to know a bit about her intellectual background. She lectures in a field called whiteness studies, which is one of a number of different disciplines or possibly pseudo-disciplines that are quote-unquote informed by a trendy but half-baked academic ideology that calls itself critical race theory. Long before she invented the term white fragility, D'Angelo had carved out a successful career in the field of workplace anti-racism training. What that means is that when a corporation or a school board wants to do something to address racism, or wants to be seen to be doing something to address racism, it will hire D'Angelo and her co-facilitators to come out and teach its employees how to think properly about race. Or as D'Angelo puts it herself, quote, I have a rare job. On a daily basis, I lead primarily white audiences in discussions of race. End quote. One of the good things about Robin D'Angelo is that she isn't a consciously dishonest writer. At pretty much every turn, she says exactly what she believes to be true. The problem is that what she believes to be true is often wildly out of sync with observable reality. Take, for example, her belief that her job involves leading discussions about race. According to my dictionary, the verb discuss means to argue or consider fully and openly. And there's ample evidence in this book that this is exactly what D'Angelo doesn't do when she talks about race. The so-called discussions about race that D'Angelo leads happen entirely on her terms. She doesn't require open conversation because she's already serenely sure that she knows what racism is and how it can be fixed. If you disagree with her, you're wrong, and you need to be, quote, educated until you do agree with her. D'Angelo is one of those modern thinkers, and there are plenty of them around, who inform you that the time has come for a so-called reckoning about this issue or that one. But the reckonings that these people proceed to conduct never seem to involve talking rationally about facts and figures and complexities, or weighing up various theories and approaches and deciding which one is the best. These aren't the sorts of reckonings where the person who's called for the reckoning says, so what do you reckon? In fact, you won't be doing any talking at all as the reckoning moves forward. All you'll be required to do is listen to and agree with the extremely reductive and one-dimensional ideas of people like Robin D'Angelo. In D'Angelo's case, there's a bonus. If you're white and you disagree with her ideas, you're a racist. In fact, if you're white, you're a racist whether you agree with her ideas or not. Mind you, D'Angelo wants white people to understand that when she calls them racists, she isn't using the word racist in the traditional way. As she puts it, quote, Let me be clear. If your definition of a racist is someone who holds conscious dislike of people because of race, then I agree that it is offensive for me to suggest that you are racist when I don't know you. Now breathe, she goes on. I am not using this definition of racism. 
Get a load of D'Angelo's tone there, by the way. Now breathe. If you want an idea of what it must be like to attend one of her workshops, you have to imagine being forced by your boss to sit there and nod while a woman you've never met before comes into your workplace and says things like that to your face in that tone of voice. So what definition of racism is D'Angelo using if she isn't using the traditional one? Well, according to critical race theorists like her, racism is systemic. As she says more than once in this book, and she says a lot of things more than once in this book, racism is a structure, not an event. The concept of the all-pervading structure is crucial to people like D'Angelo, and the structures these people are obsessed with aren't visible to the naked eye, of course. To see the structure that D'Angelo is talking about, you need to have been schooled in the same theories that she's been schooled in. And once you've had your eyes opened by those theories, you'll see that the structure is everywhere, including inside your own head. Racism is unavoidable, D'Angelo writes. It is impossible to completely escape having developed problematic racial assumptions and behaviours. End quote. So if you're white, you are by definition a racist, because nobody can avoid the awesome power of the structure. And if you're a person of colour, you by definition can't be a racist because the forces of structural racism operate in one direction only. So that's all that Robin D'Angelo means then when she says that all white people are racists. You may now breathe. But if you're white, don't overdo it. Don't go nuts. Because although D'Angelo claims not to be using the word racist in the old morally judgmental way, it has to be said that in practice... She still sort of does. She wants to have it both ways. She wants the word racism to mean something entirely new, but she also wants it to carry all of its old charge. A racist is still a very bad thing to be, as far as D'Angelo is concerned. In fact, it's about the worst thing you can be, even though you can't help being it if you're white. It's hard to miss the similarities between D'Angelo's understanding of racism and the concept of original sin. According to the doctrine of original sin, everybody is a sinner by definition. If you think you're not a sinner, you're wrong. Unless you want to go to hell, the only option you have is to confess to your sins and repent. The same goes for racism, according to people like D'Angelo. For them, it's not good enough to just not be a racist. In fact, there's no longer any such thing as not being a racist. The only alternative to being a racist is to be an active and dedicated anti-racist. You have to work on your racist tendencies constantly, preferably with paid help from people like D'Angelo. Interrupting the forces of racism, she writes, is ongoing lifelong work, because the forces conditioning us into racist frameworks are always at play. Our learning will never be finished. So where does the concept of white fragility come into all this? The concept emerged from D'Angelo's experiences as a workplace anti-racism trainer. After plying her trade for a while, she began to notice something interesting about the way white people were responding. They didn't seem to like her workshops as much as she'd expected them to. In fact, some of them seemed strangely hostile. As she puts it, quote, In the early days of my work as what was then termed a diversity trainer, 
I was taken aback by how angry and defensive so many white people became at the suggestion that they were connected to racism in any way. The very idea that they would be required to attend a workshop on racism outraged them. I couldn't understand their resentment or disinterest in learning more about such a complex social dynamic as racism. These reactions were especially perplexing, she goes on, when there were few or no people of colour in their workplace, and they had the opportunity to learn from my co-facilitators of colour. I assumed that in these circumstances, an educational workshop on racism would be appreciated. So why on earth did all these people not appreciate D'Angelo's workshops? Why were they so resistant to her methods? Clearly some radical new concept was required to explain the mystery. And so D'Angelo invented the idea of white fragility. Or as she herself poetically phrases it, I conceptualize this process as white fragility. And D'Angelo's brainwave turns out to be a remarkably flexible and versatile piece of theory. It covers, as D'Angelo says, a range of defensive moves. If you get angry when D'Angelo calls you a racist, you're displaying white fragility. If you storm out of the room, you're displaying white fragility. If you stay in the room but say nothing, that's white fragility too. In fact, short of vocally agreeing with D'Angelo's teachings 100%, there seems to be no way a white person can respond to them that doesn't constitute white fragility. As she puts it herself, the manifestations of white fragility, quote, include emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and withdrawal from the stress-inducing situation. D'Angelo reminds you a bit of those English witch hunters who used to dunk women in the river to see if they were witches. If the woman floated, she was a witch. If she sank, she wasn't a witch. But to their credit, the witch hunters at least attached the accused woman to the shore with a rope before throwing her into the water. So if the woman sank, she didn't always drown. Also, it's important to note that the witch hunters, as demented as they were, still made room for the possibility that a woman might not be a witch. D'Angelo makes no such allowance. All white people are racists, including D'Angelo herself, and their white fragility has the effect of, quote, holding racism in place. This is why D'Angelo devotes herself on a daily basis to breaking down white people's white fragility, so that she can do her bit to end racism, or at least to reduce it. When D'Angelo describes how she made up the concept of white fragility, you get a sense of her almost comical lack of self-awareness. She reminds me of one of Vladimir Nabokov's unreliable narrators. Common sense explanations simply don't occur to her. Her theories completely blind her to the evidence that's right in front of her nose. According to D'Angelo, the only appropriate response to her ministrations is gratitude. I am offering you a teachable moment, she says at one point, to a woman who has unaccountably decided to quit one of her workshops, and I am only asking that you try to listen with openness. It blows D'Angelo's mind that anyone should decline to listen with openness when they have been offered a, quote, opportunity to learn about their racism from her. She honestly seems to think that their failure to get with the program and to shower her with thanks can't be understood 
without the aid of the groundbreaking concept of white fragility. After all, what other explanation could there possibly be? It never seems to have occurred to her that people might not like her for more straightforward reasons. For example, because she uses phrases like, I am offering you a teachable moment. I'm spitballing, of course, but maybe people don't like her, because every time she opens her mouth, she emits a blue streak of pretentious jargon and toxic nonsense. D'Angelo's theory of white fragility purports to be a scientific theory. That is, she claims to be talking about something that actually exists in the real world. But scientists have a name for theories that have an answer for everything and that can never under any circumstances be proved wrong. They call them unfalsifiable. And if a theory is unfalsifiable, that doesn't mean it's a good theory. It means it's a bad theory, which can tell us little or nothing about reality. Scientists and thinkers who are serious about advancing knowledge accept that there's a real world beyond their theories, and that it's their job to describe that world as accurately as they possibly can. This means that serious thinkers accept the possibility that the contents of the real world might end up proving their theories wrong, just as serious darts players say, except that they won't get very far in the game unless they acknowledge the central importance of the dartboard and make a conscious effort to aim their darts at it. The biologist J.B.S. Haldane was a firm believer in Darwin's theory of evolution. Somebody asked him once if there was anything that would ever destroy his belief in that theory, and Haldane said, yes, if somebody was to find a rabbit fossil in the Precambrian layer, that is, in a layer of rocks that should, if Darwin is correct, contain remnants only of the planet's most primitive organisms. And of course, a Precambrian rabbit is just one example of a notional discovery that could blow Darwin's theory out of the water. There are thousands of other conceivable pieces of evidence that could prove his theory wrong, if it was wrong. They just haven't been found yet. Darwin's theory has never been falsified, and probably never will be. But it is falsifiable, and that's what makes it a respectable scientific theory. I think I can guess what Robin D'Angelo's answer would be if somebody asked her what piece of evidence, if any, would make her change her mind about the existence of white fragility and the all-pervading nature of structural racism, she'd say, you fool, I'm right, which means there's simply no need to contemplate the possibility that I'm wrong. And then she'd say, and by the way, you're a racist for even asking me that question, and you've just delivered yet more proof of your white fragility. But the fact that D'Angelo's theory can explain literally everything demonstrates exactly what's wrong with it. It's not a serious good-faith attempt to understand what is really the case. It's an ideology. It's a piece of intellectual junk. As scientists know, a theory that can explain everything actually explains nothing. And speaking of intellectual junk, the whole idea that you can be a racist without knowing it, the idea that you can have a racist unconscious which actively protects itself against attack from outsiders like D'Angelo, by exerting, quote, resistance against them. This is an extremely Freudian idea, and Freud's theories are one of the most notoriously unproven and unfalsifiable systems of thought the world has ever known, outside of religion. The scientist Peter Medawar said that Freudian theory was like a dinosaur or a zeppelin, 
No better theory, he wrote, can ever be erected on its ruins. But of course, any number of bogus theories can be built on the ruins of Freud's system, and D'Angelo's theory of white fragility is just one more of them. With the aid of her theories, D'Angelo thinks she's capable of changing the world for the better. But actually, her theories stop her from seeing the world straight in the first place. Over time, she writes, I began to see what lay beneath this anger and resistance to discuss race or listen to people of colour. But notice that even as D'Angelo is boasting about her magical ability to perceive the hidden structures that supposedly lie beneath people's behaviour, she provides us with yet more evidence of her chronic inability to accurately perceive and describe what is right in front of her eyes. She confidently asserts that the people in her workshops were a. reluctant to discuss race, and b. reluctant to listen to people of colour. But both of these assertions are, if I may borrow one of D'Angelo's favourite words, problematic. As I've said, D'Angelo doesn't simply discuss race in her workshops. She discusses it in an extremely narrow and doctrinaire and non-negotiable way. If some of the white people in her workshops don't seem to fancy participating in discussions conducted along those lines, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're reluctant to discuss race full stop. Maybe they'd be perfectly happy to talk about race if the discussion was conducted in a rational and grown-up way. As long as D'Angelo is conducting the discussion, we can't know. The proposition hasn't been fairly tested. The same goes for D'Angelo's contention that the white people in her workshops were reluctant to listen to people of colour. The people of colour she's talking about here aren't just any people of colour saying any old thing. They are her co-facilitators of colour, who have been steeped and marinated in exactly the same theories as D'Angelo has. They are particular people of colour saying particular things. And if the white people in D'Angelo's workshops don't like listening to them, that hardly proves that those white people have a deep structural reluctance to listen to black people in general. It's not as if they've been invited to listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about the cosmos. It's not as if they've been given tickets to Dave Chappelle's latest show. And more to the point, it's not as if they've been invited to hear a black intellectual talk about race in a sane and nuanced way. As it happens, there are plenty of prominent black thinkers and writers on the scene today who absolutely reject the idea that critical race theory is a useful or constructive way of talking about race. This point needs to be underlined, because at many moments in her book, D'Angelo seems to claim that she's capable of reading black people's minds, thanks to the awesome power of her theories. She claims to know what all people of colour will think. She knows what will cause them pain and hurt their feelings, or quote, impact on them. So it must be slightly embarrassing for D'Angelo to notice, if she does notice, that there's a long list of contemporary black thinkers who have argued that the doctrines of critical race theory are not just completely false, but are also downright harmful and perhaps even a bit racist in their own right. I'm talking here about thinkers like John McWhorter, Thomas Chatterton Williams, Glenn Lowry, Camille Foster, Shelby Steele, Coleman Hughes, Chloe Valdery, and Ayan Hirsi Ali. Let's say you sent one of those people into a predominantly white workplace and had them give a talk about race, or indeed about anything else. I doubt that many white Americans would straight up refuse to listen to them. 
If they did, you would then have powerful evidence that those white people were indeed racists, unwilling to listen to people of colour, no matter what they say. But the fact that people don't like listening to D'Angelo and her co-facilitators of colour proves nothing very startling. In fact, on the evidence of this book, it's very hard not to suspect that D'Angelo rigs her workshops precisely so that white people won't like them and will get upset, thus proving that all her darkest claims about the existence of white fragility are justified. In fairness, I should say that not everything D'Angelo says in this book is nonsense. She points out that in any predominantly white society, race is a non-issue for white people. As I move through my day, she writes, racism just isn't my problem. She says that for white people, racism is like water you swim in but don't see. All these observations are fair enough. Racism exists and so do racial disparities in all sorts of outcomes. So what's the answer? Should America have a serious think about the way it distributes wealth? Should the education system be drastically reformed? Some people argue that the descendants of slaves should be paid reparations. At least that's a practical suggestion that can be rationally debated. But according to D'Angelo, the whole thing comes down to just two words, structural racism. That's the whole explanation. It's the be-all and the end-all. And if you're white and you look for any explanation beyond that, you're racist. I'm not making that up, by the way. D'Angelo says that one of the many ways in which white people can exhibit their racism is by, quote, attributing inequality between whites and people of colour to causes other than racism. So what white people need to do is to stop looking for causes of inequality outside themselves and instead get to work on confronting their own unconscious racism. If I understand racism as a system into which I was socialised, D'Angelo writes, I can receive feedback on my problematic racial patterns as a helpful way to support my learning and growth. End quote. This is where D'Angelo's book begins to strike me as almost incredible. It's shot through with the belief that racism is this all-pervading and incredibly urgent problem, But when it comes to proposing a solution, D'Angelo doesn't argue, say, that the whole political and economic system must be overhauled. Instead, she says that white people must commit themselves to ongoing personal growth and learning. The problem is vast, but the answer for D'Angelo lies in the realm of self-improvement. What white people need to do is optimise their personal performance. They need to tweak their problematic assumptions and dial down their microaggressions and ramp up their virtue signalling. The solutions D'Angelo offers are trivial and semi-imaginary, and this supplies us with a powerful hint, I think, that her whole understanding of what racism is is trivial and semi-imaginary too. There's something very American about the whole business. It's as if Americans have looked at the evidence and finally said, "Okay, we have a serious problem with inequality in this country, Let's solve it right now. But let's not do that by listening to people who say that the problem is complex and calls for a complex solution. Let's look instead to the person who has the simplest idea and the catchiest slogan. On the right, Donald Trump says, make America great again. And over on the left, which I assume is where Robin D'Angelo fancies herself to be located, the mantras are all about structural racism and white fragility and compulsory re-education 
as a form of personal growth. Two long-standing and pretty dubious American traditions come together in D'Angelo's work, Fundamentalist Religion and the Self-Help Book. As it happens, I was raised a Catholic. In the long run, it didn't work out, but I can remember what the rituals of the faith were like, and I got powerful reminders of them when reading about some of the stuff that goes on in Robin D'Angelo's anti-racism workshops. I was also reminded of the Moscow show trials, but fortunately I never had to attend those in person. But I do remember the first time I went to confession. I suppose I was about 10 or 11, and I knew up front what the idea was. You were meant to tell the priest what your sins were. Since I wasn't that big a sinner when I was 10, I remember having to think pretty hard in advance of the confession about what I was going to confess to. Confessing to nothing obviously wasn't going to be an option. So I went in to see the priest, who was fairly young and seemed to be about as embarrassed by the whole business as I was, and he asked me what sins I wanted to confess to, and I told him that sometimes I swore, and also I rarely helped my mother wash up the dishes. So the priest told me to say ten Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers, and he also said, you shouldn't swear, and you should help your mother wash up the dishes. In some ways, D'Angelo's book reminded me of that transaction, although I have to admit that there were differences too. For one thing, the priest I confessed to seemed to be at least as aware as I was that the whole thing was a charade and that we were both going through the motions. Also, to his credit, he didn't just tell me to say my prayers, he also told me to help my mother wash up. The praying was always going to be a waste of time, and I'm fairly sure that even the priest knew that. But the bit about the washing up was solid practical advice, which actually did some real good in the real world. Robin D'Angelo, on the whole, is far too pious and puritanical to dish out any advice that might actually work in the world we live in. Indeed, for the most part, her book feels far more like an especially otherworldly and impractical religious text than a workable self-help manual. She calls herself a sociologist, but her book is almost totally devoid of facts and figures. When she makes an assertion that sounds like it needs some backup, she doesn't quote data or statistics to support her case. Instead, she just quotes the pronouncements of other critical race theorists. And since these are the very same people that she got her dogmatic and cockamamie ideas from in the first place, it's hardly surprising that they should back up what she says. But of course, when she quotes Professor So-and-so making some fanciful assertion that she agrees with, D'Angelo doesn't introduce the quote by saying, this is what Professor So-and-so claims, or believes, or baselessly asserts. Instead, she says, as Professor So-and-so states, or explains, or points out, as if the dreamed-up theories of other people like herself are tantamount to hard facts. So the book is a kind of echo chamber, and reading it feels exactly like arguing with somebody who believes in the literal truth of the Bible. If you tell these people that you require some proof before you agree with them, they'll say, well, how about what Matthew says in chapter 9, verse 13? And you'll say, hang on, what I'm saying is that your whole belief system has been made up out of thin air. I know that you believe it, but if you want me to believe it, I'm going to need some proof that comes from outside the scriptures. And then they'll say, well, here's what the prophet Derek said to the Canaanites on the road to Timbuktu. 
and all the time they'll be looking at you like you're the one who doesn't have a clue. Not only that, they'll be fondly imagining that your failure to agree with them means that you're going to hell. Robin D'Angelo has roughly similar views about the people who disagree with her, or who dare to ask her to back up her claims with a bit of hard evidence. Not that too many people seem to be in the habit of doing that. Certainly the people who seek out her services as a diversity trainer are not about to ask her any awkward questions about the veracity of her claims. After all, D'Angelo brands herself as an anti-racist, and anyone who's against racism must obviously be in the right. So instead of being required to prove her case, D'Angelo gets paid large sums of money to take her travelling revival show from workplace to workplace so that white people can publicly confess to their unconscious racial biases and be cleansed of their sins. The wise thing to do if you find yourself at one of D'Angelo's salvation shows is roll around on the floor and speak in tongues, the way she and the other members of her cult do. If you don't, you might find yourself featuring in her next book, among all the cautionary tales about the unclean people who have rejected her teachings. Confronting our inner racism is, D'Angelo says, a messy, lifelong process. If the process doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, you're obviously not doing it right. And if D'Angelo isn't humiliating white people at her tent shows, preferably white women, she clearly feels that she isn't doing her job. In her book, she tells many a self-satisfied anecdote about how she subjected this or that nameless white person to a well-deserved public shaming. For example, she tells the story of a white woman who spat the dummy during one of her workshops after D'Angelo and her co-facilitators repeatedly called attention to this woman's, quote, problematic assumptions. I feel like everything I say is thrown back at me, the woman finally protests. White people are being attacked and blamed, and we have to defend ourselves or just be used as punching bags. I give up. I'm not saying anything else. Of course, D'Angelo counts that one as a victory for the good guys. To the untrained eye, the woman would seem to have been bullied into submission and silence. But in D'Angelo's view, white people can't be bullied because they are the structural oppressors, and that makes them fair game. To shame them in public is to strike a small blow against an ongoing historical injustice. In other words, D'Angelo gets to have all the fun of talking and behaving like a bigot, but because her bigotry is aimed at white people, she's able to believe, in fact, she knows, that she will always, by definition, be the most morally pure person in the room. Or anyway, the most morally pure white person. Here's something that happened at another one of D'Angelo's struggle sessions, which she, quote, co-facilitated with an interracial team. Apparently one of the participants, a white woman, felt picked on, after D'Angelo and her co-facilitators gave her some, quote, sensitive and diplomatic feedback on how some of her statements had impacted several of the people of colour in the room, end quote. The woman felt that she'd been falsely accused of racism, so she left the session and went back to her desk. Sometime later, her friends informed D'Angelo and her team that the woman was in poor health and, quote, might be having a heart attack. Upon questioning from us, D'Angelo writes, they clarified that they meant this literally. These co-workers were sincere in their fear 
that the young woman might actually die as a result of the feedback. Even so, D'Angelo wants her readers to know that the young woman's medical condition cut no ice with her. No, what troubled D'Angelo was that when news of the woman's condition filtered back to her co-workers, the co-workers started to worry about her and therefore stopped worrying about the, quote, impact she had had on the people of colour. In other words, Robin D'Angelo isn't just as serious as a heart attack, she's more serious than a heart attack. The context doesn't make it entirely clear whether she thinks the woman's medical episode was real or imagined, and in fact, it doesn't seem to matter. The point seems to be that in D'Angelo's view, anything she does to combat racism, no matter how callous or insensitive it may seem to be, is morally justified by definition because racism in America is a kind of five-alarm emergency, and subtle measures are no longer an option. As D'Angelo puts it, quote, racism hurts, even kills, people of colour 24-7. Interrupting it is more important than my feelings, ego, or self-image. Does this mean that, in D'Angelo's view, racism in America is a more pressing problem than climate change, say, or homelessness? or healthcare, or gun control, or the rise of totalitarian China, or the general corrosion and degradation of American intellectual life? D'Angelo doesn't answer questions like that, and you get the feeling that if you mentioned any of these other issues to her, she'd think you were displaying an unhealthy tendency to dodge the problem of racism. In the minds of people like D'Angelo, it seems that you can measure the degree of a person's commitment to a cause by how hysterical that person is prepared to be when talking about it. If you pause for so much as half a sentence to acknowledge a nuance or a counter-argument, that will be taken as proof that you want to minimise the suffering of the wretched. It follows that the less nuanced your arguments are, the more committed you must be. By that measure, Robin D'Angelo is very committed indeed. This is a book entirely without nuance and wholly lacking in a sense of proportion or perspective. To show everybody just how serious she is about combating racism, D'Angelo seems to go out of her way to say things that are not just obviously untrue, but are obviously the complete opposite of the truth. Is she willing, for example, to concede that racial attitudes in America in the year 2018 are even slightly more healthy than they used to be? Absolutely not. I am often asked if I think the younger generation is less racist, she writes, and she answers, no, I don't. In some ways, racism's adaptations over time are more sinister than concrete rules such as Jim Crow. End quote. So there you have it. According to D'Angelo, American racism today is more sinister than it was in the days when black people in the South had to drink from different water fountains and eat at separate lunch counters and ride in the front of the bus, and when the National Guard had to be called in to escort black students one by one into integrated high schools. Needless to say, D'Angelo produces absolutely zero evidence to back up her claim that racism is a more sinister force now than it was then. But presumably if you don't agree with her that it is, that means you're part of the problem. And guess what D'Angelo has to say about white Americans who are racists in the old-fashioned sense, that is to say, active racists who actually do and say racist things. 
Presumably she'll be ready to concede that people who openly behave in racist ways are just a touch worse than people who don't. Actually, no, she isn't ready to concede that. On this question too, D'Angelo seems to feel that it's her job to turn common sense upside down. Unbelievably, she actually commends straight-up racists for at least being frank about their racism. Such people, she writes, are, quote, actually more aware of and honest about their biases than those of us who consider ourselves open-minded, yet who have rarely thought critically about the biases we inevitably hold. Does this mean that D'Angelo thinks that people who are ostensibly non-racist progressives are actually worse than blatant racists? Actually, yes, it does mean that. I believe, she writes, that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of colour. And she puts this sentence in italics, just in case we've overlooked her bold willingness to affirm the absurd. The problem with white progressives, she goes on to explain, is that, quote, we put our energy into making sure that others see us as having arrived. None of our energy will go into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives, engaging in ongoing self-awareness, continuing education, relationship building, and actual anti-racist practice. End quote. But when you think about it, common sense views about racism must be turned inside out and upside down if D'Angelo's career is to keep thriving. After all, if we define racist behaviour in the old-fashioned way, then detecting it isn't all that hard. It can be noticed by any layperson with a functioning set of eyes and ears. And if we were to allow things to be that straightforward, then we wouldn't need handsomely paid experts like D'Angelo to help us sniff racism out like intellectual truffle hounds. People like her would rapidly lose their purpose and their power and the whole priesthood would be out of business. So the idea that things are really as they seem must be rejected as a matter of policy if D'Angelo is to retain her magical power to read people's minds, along with her occult ability to detect invisible structures and subliminal racial aggressions. To maintain their faith-based hold over people, racketeers like D'Angelo must make sure that the rules of the game stay in a constant and bewildering state of flux. Time-honoured words and concepts must be redefined out of all recognition, and new words and concepts must constantly be invented. So instead of saying Latino or Latina, for example, you must for some reason say Latin with an X on the end of it, unless of course the rules have changed again since D'Angelo published this book. For all I know, you're now supposed to say Latin with a Y on the end of it to make their theories seem necessary, to make sure that they stay eternally in the right while you stay eternally in the wrong, people like D'Angelo have to keep tweaking things, and they have to keep violating the laws of common sense at every possible turn. As her book proceeds, Robin D'Angelo keeps subtly raising the bar of silliness and fatuity, and she effortlessly keeps clearing it, pacing herself she holds back her crowning absurdity until the book's second last chapter, which is entitled White Women's Tears. In this chapter, D'Angelo probes the hidden links between the crying of white women in the year 2018 and the lynching murder of Emmett Till, which occurred in Mississippi 
1955. Till was a 14-year-old African-American boy who was alleged to have behaved inappropriately towards a white woman in a grocery store. The woman claimed that Till had grabbed her around the waist while uttering obscenities. She later admitted that this wasn't entirely true and that she had exaggerated the details of his transgression. But anyway, this is what the woman told her husband that Till had done, and her husband and his half-brother abducted the boy, beat him to death, and mutilated the body. The men were tried for murder, but the all-white jury found them not guilty. And then in a magazine interview published just a few months later, both men admitted that they had indeed been guilty as charged. The story of Emmett Till was a horror show. It appalled every decent American, and it was one of the many grotesque and widely publicized episodes of Southern racism that encouraged the growth of the civil rights movement in the early 1960s. But what, if anything, does the foul murder of Emmett Till in 1955 have to do with the fact that Robin DiAngelo, more than 60 years later, frequently makes women cry in her anti-racism workshops? Well... I'd better let D'Angelo explain the connection in her own words, because if I tried to explain it in mine, I'd run the risk of making her position sound less ludicrous than it actually is. Here's what she says. Quote, White women's tears in cross-racial interactions are problematic for several reasons connected to how they impact others. For example, there is a long historical backdrop of black men being tortured and murdered because of a white woman's distress. And we white women bring these histories with us. Our tears trigger the terrorism of this history, particularly for African Americans. The murder of Emmett Till, D'Angelo goes on, is just one example of the history that informs an oft-repeated warning from my African American colleagues. When a white woman cries, a black man gets hurt. Not knowing or being sensitive to this history, D'Angelo adds, is another example of white centrality, individualism, and lack of racial humility. So white women need to think very hard before they cry, according to Robin D'Angelo. We need to reflect, she writes, on when we cry and when we don't, and why. For people of colour, our tears demonstrate our racial insulation and privilege. End quote. So what exactly is a white woman to do then if she should ever feel the need to cry in what D'Angelo calls a cross-racial situation? Well, she should emulate the shining example set by D'Angelo herself, who recommends that cross-racial crying situations should be handled as follows. Quote, I have certainly been moved to tears by someone's story in cross-racial discussions, and I imagine that Sometimes tears are appreciated as they can validate and bear witness to the pain of racism for people of colour. But I try to be very thoughtful about how and when I cry. I try to cry quietly so that I don't take up more space. And if people rush to comfort me, I do not accept the comfort. I let them know that I am fine so we can move on. End quote. Now, I would submit that if any of that sounds to you like a useful guide to the way that adult human beings should interact with each other, then you've officially lost your mind. There does come a time when you're dealing with a book like this when you have to step back from analysing all its little 
particular excesses and absurdities, and remind yourself of the basic fact that the whole thing, the whole project, is just flagrantly insane. I try to cry quietly so I don't take up more space. For people of colour, our tears demonstrate our racial insulation and privilege. As Jeremy Bentham would have said, this isn't just nonsense. It's nonsense on stilts. It's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. It would make a cat laugh. But this is what people like D'Angelo want the world to be like. They think they're somehow progressive, but this is their idea of how human beings should behave and interact all the time. And the evidence suggests that they're increasingly getting their way, not just in America, but in any other place that's been rash enough to import these hysterical American ideas. Real life is steadily becoming more and more like one of D'Angelo's grievance workshops, because not enough sensible people have had the courage to say, hang on, you appear to be talking utter bollocks. And it's clear from D'Angelo's book that that's what sensible people of all hues are going to need to do if they want to curtail the increasing influence of this bizarre, anti-human cult. Clearly, this strange priesthood isn't going to blow the whistle on itself. D'Angelo isn't the kind of person who's ever going to realise, let alone admit, that her whole life's work has been one big scam. After all, she really does seem to believe this stuff, and she has a huge financial incentive to keep believing it. So she's not going to spontaneously say one day, stop giving me all this money, because this whole thing is just a made-up racket that's gotten drastically out of hand. She's not going to call bullshit on herself. If bullshit is ever going to be called here, it's up to the rest of us to call it. The old story about the frog in boiling water is well known, but it's worth repeating. If you throw a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put a frog in cold water and crank up the heat very gradually, it won't jump out and it will let itself boil slowly to death. Apparently recent experiments have shown that this isn't true, but in any case we all recognise that it's a useful metaphor for human tolerance. Certainly it's a useful metaphor for America's relationship with Bunkum. Over the last few decades, people like D'Angelo have steadily cranked up the dial on their claims, and the ambient level of bullshit has risen by slow degrees. To begin with, these types decided to teach a generation of students that all human interactions are governed by mysterious power structures that can't be seen, but that somehow determine and condition everything we say and do. Did the world demand to see the fine print on that? Well, not enough people did, so the dial went up, and before long somebody had invented a field called whiteness studies. Did the whole world fall about laughing when that happened? No, it didn't, so the dial went up again, and it kept going up and up, until one day it seemed somehow normal and acceptable that this person called Robin D'Angelo should be paid large sums of money to go around to workplaces teaching white people what the right way to behave around black people is, and putting white women in positions in which they are very likely to cry, so that when they do cry, she can triumphantly tell them that their tears are deeply insensitive and problematic, because those tears are bound to remind black people of a lynching that took place 60 years ago in the Deep South. But how many black Americans really do think of Emmett Till? every time they see a white woman cry. One in a hundred? One in a thousand? One in ten thousand? 
Unlike D'Angelo, I wouldn't claim to know the answer, but one thing is clear. The percentage will certainly be higher among people who have been force-fed the doctrines of critical race theory. Notice that it isn't regular African-American people who say to D'Angelo, when a white woman cries, a black man gets hurt. It's her, quote, African-American colleagues who tell her that. In other words, it's other people who belong to the same cult that D'Angelo belongs to. And it's quite obvious that this cult is bent on seeking out offence in every cross-racial interaction. D'Angelo and her co-thinkers seem to want normal human relationships between people of different skin colours to become effectively impossible. They want to fill the space between us with a maze of invisible tripwires that there is no way of not triggering. In D'Angelo's world, a white person looking to talk to a black person must approach the encounter like Catherine Zeta-Jones trying to negotiate the laser alarm system in the movie Entrapment. And D'Angelo is like Sean Connery, cantankerously looking on with his stopwatch, saying, get it bloody right, you've tripped the alarm yet again. There are some telling pages in the book where D'Angelo writes about her efforts to mentor or correct a couple of white school teachers who have landed themselves in trouble for saying allegedly racist things. Since D'Angelo is the one doing the perceiving and the narrating, there's no way of telling whether these teachers deserve to be in trouble or not. D'Angelo doesn't tarry over such questions, because in her view, to be accused of racism is to be guilty of it. In fact, in her universe, the previously quite serious charge of racism has effectively lost all meaning, since everyone is a racist anyway. But one thing these little vignettes of hers do accidentally reveal is that a depressing number of American schoolteachers are starting to feel like giving up, or have given up already, because people like D'Angelo have so successfully packed the undergrowth with their little booby traps that not causing unconscious offence to the type of student or person who would quite like to be offended has become close to impossible. But D'Angelo no doubt thinks it's a good thing that the American education system is being purged of such undesirable elements. If you want to be as enlightened as she is, you need to understand that people who aren't white must be addressed in special ways. Throughout her book, D'Angelo writes as if the people she insists on calling people of colour are uniquely vulnerable and offendable human beings who must be handled with extreme delicacy. At one point, to give her white readers an idea of how these exotic beings should properly be addressed, D'Angelo helpfully recounts a little episode from her own life. Apparently, she once offended a black colleague of hers named Angela at a meeting. To repair the damage, D'Angelo proceeded to apologize to Angelo using the following multi-pronged technique. Quote, I opened by asking Angela, would you be willing to grant me the opportunity to repair the racism I perpetrated toward you in that meeting? Fortunately for D'Angelo, her colleague answers this opening gambit with a yes. This gives D'Angelo the opportunity to move forward with the apology proper. Quote, I apologize and ask her if I have missed anything else problematic in the meeting. It turns out that D'Angelo has missed something else problematic at the meeting, so she apologizes for that too. She accepts my apology, D'Angelo recalls, and then I ask Angela if there is anything else that needs to be said or heard so that we may move forward. End quote. Again, I would contend that you've completely lost your mind 
If this sounds to you like the way that two grown people who are not brain-damaged should interact with each other, it certainly doesn't sound like the way D'Angelo would interact with her white friends. In fact, she doesn't sound like someone who's addressing a fellow human being at all. She sounds like a bomb disposal expert trying to disarm an especially dangerous IED. But of course, D'Angelo thinks it's perfectly okay to treat black people in this fantastically patronizing way because she does it in the name of a cutting-edge and supposedly forward-looking belief system. She doesn't treat black people differently because she's a racist, you see. She does it because she's an anti-racist. See the difference? Neither do I. At this point, I want to utter a sentence that is in one sense indisputably true, and in several other senses close to incredible. Robin D'Angelo is an educated person. As risible as that statement will sound to anyone who's actually read this book, it can't be denied that in the technical sense it's true. D'Angelo has passed through America's higher education system all the way to PhD level, and she now lectures and educates inside that system. But in every sense other than the technical one, it seems simply absurd to say that D'Angelo is an educated person, because she seems to know almost nothing. She seems to have no sense at all of what the history of the world has been like, and no sense of where America in the year 2020 ranks on the scale of world historical badness. In fact, D'Angelo delivers clinching proof in this book that the word education simply no longer means what it used to mean. These days, receiving an education, at least in a discipline like hers, means being told what to think, not being taught how to think. To put it another way, education has now become a straight-up synonym for indoctrination in fields like hers. There was a time when education broadened people's minds and made them better people, but D'Angelo's education seems to have made her a worse person. It seems to have shrunk down her perspective to the size of an angry and intolerant little pinhole. PhD or no PhD, this is one of the most stiflingly parochial books of non-fiction I've ever read. It's well enough known that people on the American right are so stupid that they think that America is the center of the world, and perhaps of the universe. But over on the left, know-nothing intellectuals like D'Angelo practice their own brand of American exceptionalism. If people on the right think that nobody does it better than America, people like D'Angelo seem to operate on the assumption that nobody does it worse. D'Angelo seems to imagine that American racism is a uniquely extreme and horrifying brand of racism. Mind you, D'Angelo never actually says that out loud. Not just because saying it out loud would expose the assumption's absurdity, but because in order to say it out loud, D'Angelo would have to acknowledge that racism has existed at other times and in other places. And she seems curiously reluctant to do that, probably for fear of disrespecting the quote lived experience of victims of American racism. D'Angelo's eerie unwillingness to contextualize American racism is a hard thing to discuss in the abstract. So let me give a concrete example of what I'm talking about. In a chapter of her book called White Fragility in Action, D'Angelo says this, quote, I was working with a small group of white participants when a woman I will refer to as Eva stated that because she grew up in Germany, where she said there were no black people, she had learned nothing about race and held no racism, End quote. 
When you're reading D'Angelo's book for the first time, and you're not yet familiar with the strange limits of the author's mind, you imagine that the clueless Eva has lobbed D'Angelo a bit of a softball here. You fully expect D'Angelo to reply by saying something like, Well, Eva, Germany had its own brush with structural racism a little while back, and the results, if you can believe it, were so bad that they put American racism in the shade. If nothing else, you'd think that the name Eva would ring a few bells for D'Angelo. But instead of giving Eva a refresher course about the particular history of German racism, D'Angelo responds in a way that makes you wonder if she's even heard of the Holocaust. Here's what she says. Quote, I pushed back on this claim by asking her to reflect on the messages she had received from her childhood about people who lived in Africa. Surely she was aware of Africa and had some impressions of the people there. Had she ever watched American films? If so, what impression did she get about African Americans? I also asked her to reflect on what she had absorbed from living in the US for the last 23 years, whether she had any relationships with African Americans here, and if not, then why not? This feedback doesn't go down too well with Eva, who pushes back in her turn by saying that she finds D'Angelo's remarks invalidating. Here's how D'Angelo responds to that. I held to my challenge that growing up in Germany would not preclude her from absorbing problematic racial messages about black people. She countered by telling me that she had never even seen a black person before the American soldiers came, and when they did come, all the German women thought them so beautiful that they wanted to connect with them. This, says D'Angelo, was her evidence that she held no racism. With an internal sigh of defeat, she goes on, I gave up at that point. And that's that. If D'Angelo has any ideas about what those American soldiers might have been doing in Germany, she doesn't let on. I mention this weird exercise in historical illiteracy because it seems to me to say something pretty striking about the intellectual calibre of Robin D'Angelo and of all the other critical race theorists like her who claim to have the simple answer to one of the most entrenched and complicated problems that America currently faces. This is how interested in history and real-life politics and the rest of the world these people are. You have to ask yourself if you put America's future in the hands of people who are this determined to know next to nothing about anything, do you really think they're going to make a tricky situation better? Or are they more likely to send the place careering towards the edge of the nearest cliff? In another part of the book, D'Angelo blunders into my own field, the field of literature. Here again, her lack of culture and nuance is near total. In fact, the passage I'm talking about might just be the most depressing and nihilistic thing in the whole book. D'Angelo begins by offering her readers a brief list of famous white writers, including Shakespeare and Jane Austen and Mark Twain. And she says, quote, These writers are seen as representing the universal human experience, and we read them precisely because they are presumed to be able to speak to us all. End quote. Then, D'Angelo furnishes a list of non-white writers, which includes the name of Toni Morrison. We go to these writers for the black or Asian perspective, D'Angelo says. Toni Morrison is always seen as a black writer, not just a writer. End quote. Really? Is that true? I'll admit that I'm unqualified to say whether it's true in America, 
although after reading D'Angelo's book, I am qualified to say that I know far better than to take her word for it. But there was a time in the not-too-distant past when I taught classes about Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon at an Australian university. And Morrison wasn't on the syllabus because she was a black writer or because we wanted to teach Australian students about the, quote, black perspective. She was on the syllabus because she was, if I may use a couple of terms that don't seem to feature in D'Angelo's vocabulary. She was an original and talented artist, and because anyone who knows anything about literary merit will know that there is room in the American canon for both Mark Twain and Toni Morrison. Of course, if you've read any of Toni Morrison's novels, and nothing D'Angelo says gives me much confidence that she has, you'll know that it's a bit hard to talk about them without acknowledging that Morrison is, or was, not just an American writer, but an African-American writer. Morrison wrote about the black experience in America, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't writing about the human experience at the same time. At moments like this, it becomes very hard to work out what Robin D'Angelo actually wants. Does she want Shakespeare to be read as a writer who wrote just for white people, and Toni Morrison to be read as a writer who wrote just for black people? Or is she prepared to acknowledge that there is indeed such a thing as the universal human experience, which both Morrison and Shakespeare wrote about from their own cultural vantage points? If D'Angelo does want to get past race and acknowledge that there are experiences that all human beings share, she has an extremely funny way of showing it. The truth is that it's D'Angelo, and other people like her, who can't see past skin colour. They're the ones who insist on reducing William Shakespeare to the colour of his skin, and Toni Morrison to the colour of hers. They diminish both writers in the process, and they diminish the rest of us too, and they begin to impoverish our whole sense of what literature and life are about. I dare say if I was teaching one of Toni Morrison's novels today, I would now, thanks to people like D'Angelo, have to spend far more time talking about the fairly boring general issue of race than I did 20 years ago, and therefore far less time talking about the particular qualities of Morrison's book and of her individual voice. Or perhaps D'Angelo would prefer me not to be allowed to teach Morrison's novels at all, because I'm not African-American. Actually, if every guilty white American liberal who has shelled out money for Robin D'Angelo's paranoid and nasty book had only bought and read a novel by Toni Morrison instead, the American psyche would be in far healthier shape than it's in right now. Toni Morrison had a literary mind. D'Angelo has a literal one. She has a one-track mentality, and the track is recorded in mono. Everything is about race for her. She wants this variable to infect every conceivable cranny of our lives, and she isn't alone in wanting that. At one point in her book, she cites a study that, quote, found racial hostility in white children as young as three years old. I'll repeat that. Somebody like D'Angelo did a study that went looking for racial hostility in white children as young as three. And guess what? They found it, at least according to their own, no doubt, D'Angelo-level standards of rigor and empirical precision. What next? checking the ultrasounds of pregnant white women to see if the fetus is flashing the white power sign? When and where will the Inquisition end? What space, if any, lies beyond its reach? Is there any department of human existence or achievement 
that D'Angelo doesn't yearn to poison with her ideology? The answer seems to be no. It turns out that she's even capable of twisting and devaluing the words of Martin Luther King. Here's what she writes about King's I Have a Dream speech. Quote, One line of King's speech in particular, that one day he might be judged by the content of his character and not the colour of his skin, was seized upon by the white public because the words were seen to provide a simple and immediate solution to racial tensions. Pretend that we don't see race, and racism will end. End quote. It's typical of D'Angelo's airy disrespect for reality and for the meaning of words that even as she presumes to explain why Martin Luther King's dream of a colorblind future will no longer do, she manages to misquote one of the most famous phrases ever uttered in American history. King didn't say that he hoped that he would one day be judged by the content of his character rather than the color of his skin. He said that he hoped that his children would one day live in an America where that happened. And it's typically cynical of D'Angelo. It's typical of her urge to trample everything of value that she thinks that white people who were moved by King's words must have interpreted his message to mean pretend that we don't see race and racism will end. But of course we do see the race of other people, D'Angelo triumphantly rejoins, and race holds deep social meaning for us which means, according to her, that anyone who claims to be able to see beyond race is just pretending. This strikes me as feeble, even by D'Angelo's standards. If certain unnamed people really did think that Martin Luther King's message had something to do with pretending not to see race, they were idiots, and King's argument doesn't cease to be valid and compelling just because a few Philistines, possibly including D'Angelo herself, subsequently elected to misunderstand what he said. Because really what he said wasn't all that hard to understand correctly. He said that he wanted a world in which all people would be judged by the content of their character rather than the colour of their skin. That world doesn't exist yet, but it's a future that any rational and decent person would want to live in. And thanks to thinkers like D'Angelo, it's further away now than it once was. D'Angelo is the one who insists that we will never be able to see past race no matter how hard we try. She's the one who informs us that any white person who claims to be able to see the human content of a black person is just pretending. Feeble as D'Angelo is when trying to diminish the message of Martin Luther King, it's significant that she feels the need to try. She seems to know that King's civilized and humane dream poses a problem for her whole ideology. I think she senses that if King were alive today, he would find her approach deplorable, and I think she's right to sense that. As insensitive to language as she is, D'Angelo does seem to realise at some level that King's message resonates in a way that nothing she's capable of thinking or saying ever will. And it resonates because any decent person can see that what King said was right, both factually and morally. That meant that he didn't have to bully people or call them names or conduct purges to force them to agree that his cause was just. Nor did he have to change or twist the meaning of words. Because he was right, he had the luxury of being able to persuade people simply by using language in a straightforward and honest way. And because he was gifted, as well as being right, he was able to raise a rational argument 
to the level of poetry. His personal style and his prose style embodied the merits of his cause. And D'Angelo's personal style and prose style, such as they are, embody the merits of her cause. King had a dream. The brave new world proposed by Robin D'Angelo is a nightmare. And it might yet become a reality if enough people of goodwill don't stand up to charlatans like her and tell them, you've had your fun, but enough's enough. And that's all I want to say about Robin D'Angelo. If you enjoy this show and you want to support it, you can do so by rating and reviewing it wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can support it directly by going to paypal.me forward slash goodbadbogus or patreon.com slash goodbadbogus. Until next time, I'm David Free, and you've been listening to The Good, The Bad, and The Bogus. Bogus.